This is Poetry Off the Shelf. I'm Helena Alderkrod. Today, we talk about suicidal ideation. Nothing graphic, but if you want to skip this one, please do that and take good care of yourself. Okay, so now here's today's episode, How to Be a Family of One. Stephen Espada Dawson grew up in East L.A. doing all the things kids do, listening to music with his friends, getting donuts and slushies. But when he was a teenager, his mother was diagnosed with cancer. And then his brother Brian, who'd been struggling with a heroin addiction for years, disappeared. So now it's just him and his mom. When we talked, Stephen Espada Dawson had just gotten a piece of really good news. He was selected as one of five young poets for this year's Lily Rosenberg Fellowship. But it'll come as no surprise that it's his mom who's on his mind. Her cancer has returned, and this time it's terminal. I spoke to Stephen the day after he got back from a week-long visit with her. Um, it was a week that felt like about four months long. So we were basically like in and out of the hospital the whole time. Oh God, I'm um, so sorry. Lots of, uh, yeah, <laughs> it wasn't great. But you know what? I learned a lot about her and I learned a lot about myself and us. So it it was valuable. And I think that she appreciated it. I know that she did because she said that. So, yeah, I'm, I'm really glad. I mean, I would have hate, hated for her to go through all that alone. So Oh, God, yeah. Yeah. And you said that your mom said how grateful she was for you to be there. Um, is she generally kind of expressive about that? Or is that something that has come later? You know, she is a very independent person because she's had to be out of necessity. You know, I think she has trouble asking for help, but, you know, you need to step in. And um, even if she doesn't ask for help, you need to give help. Yeah. So I do think that with these situations comes a kind of like a necessity for a kind of intimacy. Mm -hmm. So we're learning how to do that. Actually, uh, you know, she was really sick and like vomiting in the back of a lift on the way to a hospital when I was there. And we were like holding hands, which is like super intimate for us. You know, we, we, we never do that. Yeah. Um, so, you know, we're, we're learning how to be people. Yeah. Yeah. And is there like an aide or someone who can help you? I, I don't know what kind of help she needs right now, but like, does she need help being washed or something like that, you know? And, and how does that all work? Well, at her worst, um, so about six weeks ago, she had a stroke, which really complicated everything and her, like, mobility and stuff like that. She, for the last few years, she's, like, had to walk with a walker and things like that. But she's been pretty independent, mm -hmm. so much so that, like, she kept a night job for a really long time working from her house. What did she and, do? And... Uh, so she just like sold things um, and they're like expensive things. She she told me she swore, and this is actually in a poem of mine, she swore that she sold camping gear to Matthew McConaughey. <laughs> 
she's positive. You know, she is so sure that happened. Like she recognized his voice. Oh yeah, is what she's absolutely. Mm-hmm. And and for sure, there is somewhere in her small little apartment that has Matthew McConaughey's credit card number on it. I guarantee it. <laughs> somewhere in that space. So you're gonna find that basically, and oh, have yeah. to check in with your moral compass oh yeah i'm not even gonna grieve first you know first the credit card number <laughs> of matthew mcconaughey and then i'll grieve later yeah yeah and so when you say like you know it, it was a week but it felt like four months it, why do you think that is like is it the intensity the boredom like what do you think makes time go so funny you know that that's a good question <laughs> I know that we couldn't do much, you know, so there was a lot of just like sitting, watching, you know, whatever's on the hospital TV and uh, talking about anything else to avoid, <laughs> like yeah. accepting like what is going on. And, and she's like apologizing that we couldn't go to like the places that we might normally go to and and uh, and stuff like that. But yeah. 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 So when you're in Austin, are you texting her a lot? Like, what is the, you know, the kind of balance there? Yeah. Well, these days, so post-stroke, I call her every day, twice a day. Um, Both, like, just to make sure she's doing well. Um, You know, advocating for her if I need to advocate for something to change with her care or whatever. Um, But also, she needs practice speaking. You know, um, it's something that we, that we have to do. Um, yeah. 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 You know, like, I feel like often for a lot of people that I know, when they go home to their parents, even when you're an adult, you go home and you regress into some kind of, you know, maybe teenage version of yourself. You know, maybe not as bad, but like there's oh, some, totally. right? But of course, with you, there's this extra complication that you now sort of have a role of responsibility over your mom. Yeah. And so I'm wondering, like, do you still regress? And then how does that bump up against you being a responsible adult <laughs> there? <laughs> it is. Oh, man. Um, it is so confusing. Uh, yeah. So to put this in perspective, I think like. I don't know, a couple of weeks before my mom had a stroke, she sent me a care package. And and at this time, you know, she's working on a night job. She's employed and and uh, she can do this kind of thing. And I was so excited because she said, you know, I sent you a little care package. So it gets here. You know, I'm thinking it's like, I don't know, really personal gifts from home. You know, maybe some old photos, um, you know, maybe snacks that I used to like when I was younger or something like that. And it's just a bunch of toothbrushes and toothpaste. (laughs) And she's like, I know you don't brush your teeth enough. (laughs) You know, after not having lived with me for 12 years, Mm -hmm. you know, but she's sure of it, you know? So I do think there is still like that position where I'm just like a lot younger. And that's sort of like, flipped itself on its head when she could barely speak, you know, and I'm suddenly in a position where I'm responsible. 
I'm responsible for her next moves. In some ways, I'm like financially responsible too. Yeah. And I had to become someone older. And, and I was very frustrated because I was like really trying so hard to advocate for this person mm-hmm. that I don't think taught me how to be this person yet. That's interesting. You know? Yeah. And, uh, you know, I'm 30 and, and maybe I think usually in this position, yeah. you know, maybe you're in your 40s, maybe in your 50s, the, the lucky few people are in their 60s before that kind of thing happens. And so it felt like it felt like these two worlds really competing with each other, um, where I am sort of like uh, immediately infantilized, but also I have to I have to be the one. Yeah. You know, I have to um, jump into the future in order to make sure she's she's taken care of. So, yeah. 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 Um, Yeah. Yeah. And then when you're there or when you're trying to kind of manage your mother's care and her health from a distance, how does writing poems fit into that? Like, when do you write? So do you know that animal dichotomy of ox and cat writers? Are you familiar with that? No. Okay, so there's that whole thing about ox writers. Ox writers are those writers that can set a schedule for themselves and actually write during that time. And I used to think that was a myth. And now I have a few ox writing friends who literally will give themselves three hours in a day to write and they will write for those three hours and it blows my mind it's like magic to watch that happen yeah right yeah um cat writers are far more sporadic um i'm like the cat that is like hidden underneath the couch uh inside the wall (laughs) you know um (laughs) so i mean i take it when i can get it um one of the poems that's really important to me and to the project i'm working on I wrote in the bathroom of an Ethiopian restaurant, you know, Uh and I think my friends are just sort of used to me vanishing a little bit, Yeah, you know, and I won't say, hey, I'm about to go write a poem in the bathroom stall. Yeah. So I just say, okay, I I need to go to the bathroom, be right back. And then 30 minutes later, I emerge with a draft. I would say a good 10% of my book is uh, (laughs) written in places that you shouldn't uh, be writing poems in. You know, uh, the dressing room of a target. Um, yeah, I get the words down and then, you know, I, I look at line breaks and things like that later. Um, I also think like pre-writing is really important to me. So just like leaning into that more so than the actual like fingers on the keyboard kind of thing. Pre-writing, you mean in your head? Pre-writing, I, what I mean, is, I guess, is just like listening to the world. Um, the, the poet Ed Hirsch, in some old anthology, uh, defines a poem as like an event of language, right? Yeah. And that is the kind of like vague definition that I can really get behind, yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> you know, because it knows its limitations, but also its limitations are its strengths, I think. Mm -hmm. Uh, so I try to really just open myself up to events of language that happen around me, um, and just sort of be, uh, a note taker, you know, Mm -hmm. that's it. And if I can apply those events of language to things that have happened, 
in my life, things that are happening in my life, then I do that. And that's how the poem is born. Mm -hmm. Or I catch myself, you know, just being a little bit magnetized to like certain images out in the world. So for example, in my, in my last year of grad school, there was this banana that somebody, a banana peel that somebody just like left in the parking lot. And it was so rude to just like leave this banana peel in the parking lot. But also I'm like on my way to the bus. So I'm not going to pick up that banana peel. Yeah, right. Yeah. So this banana peel just lives there and it starts like baking into the sun and it starts shriveling and turning black. And then I go to my apartment and I don't leave all weekend and I, I come outside on Monday and I I get startled by it because I think it's a dead bat. Huh. And I I learned about myself that I was just seeing death kind of everywhere. Right. Yeah, yeah. And and I wrote that. You know, that that image, in fact, with the banana is in um, a poem in the book. Right. Yeah. So, yeah, that actually is in the poem that I was hoping you could read now. So <laughs> um, oh, do you want to read that poem? It's the one what I hate most about mom. Yeah. OK. Yeah. Let me find that. OK. What I hate most about mom is her dying. How these days I'm busy reckoning how to make a family from just one man. I see death everywhere. A banana peel left to the sun is a bat's cadaver. The accent mark in every beautiful Spanish word, la poesia, is a switch blade at the belly. I can look at the knot in a piece of wood until it frightens me. It's November now. All the leaves are curled with drought. I lied before. What I hate most about my dying mother is that she won't eat garlic. In these final weeks, I try to impress her with my cooking. She turns each meal she won't eat into a rhymed couplet. When I meet death, I won't have bad breath. I'm still learning from her how to laugh at this poem, how to turn each bridge into a balcony, to applaud everything that floats downriver. Depending which way you turn, the water is coming or it has already left. Thank you. Hmm. Um, yeah, those lines about your mother's sense of humor. She turns each meal she won't eat into a rhymed couplet. When I meet death, I won't have bad breath. I'm still learning from her how to laugh at this poem. Um, the way she brings in this humor at this really painful time, do you think she's teaching you something there or trying to? I think that, I mean, I think that literally humor can be a way to avoid things, but it's so I think that would be the easy answer. And I think that uh, sometimes that's the truth. 
Mm-hmm. But I also think that there is a kind of like wholeness when you bring in the comedy into a poem that is not funny and make it funny. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just, <laughs> I think that beauty and humor and joy often makes the speaker whole and, and makes me feel whole and capable of all emotions. Right. That is such a good way of putting it. Yeah, it does bring in some oxygen or so, you know, that you really need to deal with all the rest. Totally. Yeah. Can I tell you a, um, a story about humor? Yeah, please. <laughs> okay. Uh, so, okay. So this starts heavy. Okay. Uh, and I want to give like a content warning for suicidal ideation here for anyone that's um, listening and that that helps. Yeah. Um, so I think it was sometime in the, in the last few months, I was like in a really bad spot. And so I called the National Suicide Prevention Hotline, right, which yeah. is something I've done before. And I was put on hold, which happens a lot there. So I brought up their little app. I don't know if you've ever heard of their app, but they have an app called the Virtual Hope Box. Okay. Right. Is that something you're familiar with? I'm not. No, I, I'm intrigued. Okay. So the Virtual Hope Box is an app. It's kind of like a childish app, to be honest. But, you know, I think for some people it probably works where you upload a bunch of images into this Hope Box. And, you know, they could be images that just make you happy, like superficially, like puppies or something like that. Right. Or you with your family or... Um, some kind of images that give you hope. And so you sit there and you sort of um, put the image together. So they like break apart the image and you have to like drag the images into the right positions and, <laughs> right. and stuff like that to make the thing whole. So right? they make and a puzzle, they kind of like, kinda. yeah, they, yeah. Ma- they like gamify mm-hmm. suicide. It's like a really interesting thing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I'm on the hold with the prevention hotline and it's been 45 minutes. And then this app is not downloading on my phone because I haven't I haven't used it in a while. And I started crying with laughter at that situation <laughs> because I was trying so hard to stay alive and I was doing all the right things and this was happening. Yeah, that's and it, it, it Yeah, and it didn't feel like the universe was like looking down on me or something or I had this like rain cloud over me. It felt like like everything was laughing with me. At just like the sort of absurdity of that. Right. 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 Like you were having a real dramatic moment. and It was a real dramatic just, moment. Yeah. Like giving you the most banal stuff that it could muster, like tech issues oh, and absolutely. weight lines. Being on hold, right? <laughs> oh, God. Was there hold music? Oh, man. I don't remember if there's hold music, actually. We can call and find out. <laughs> um <laughs> Yeah, but it, I do remember someone like popping up and being like, your call is important to us or something generic like that. Um, and you know what? I am not the only one that has experienced this very same thing, mm-hmm. right? I'm part of like this anonymous online community yeah. um, uh, of people that are like trying to stay. And uh, I've heard like very similar things. Uh, so Yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah, and it's hilarious. I mean, it's objectively hilarious. And that sort of like bounces you back into reality. Yeah. Right. Yeah. That, 
you know, you're capable of a full spectrum of emotions, even in moments like that, even in moments of intense grief where you, you, you want to press the escape button. Yeah. Right. But do you feel like that space, right, that you then feel like, oh, even within the moment of my abject sadness, I can find laughter, you know, like, do you feel like you could do that when you were younger and struggling with suicidal ideation also? Oh, absolutely not. Um, I think that when I was younger, I was uh, more committed to certainty than I am now. Right. So when you're when you're young and you don't know how to process emotions, you are certain of how you feel. Yeah. But certainty takes away possibility. And and now I am completely uncertain. <laughs> and and that's kind of amazing. Um I, I also sort I I preach to my students every once in a while that certainty is like the death of art. And and your poems should not seek to at least you know when you're drafting them should not seek to become answers. I I I want you to sort of like reckon in this space to be uncertain and to be comfortable with that feeling. Right. Right. So, so the ending should not be a finality. Like the ending should be a door or so. Absolutely. Yeah. The ending should be a door. That's great. I love that. Well, I love your ending here because, uh, I feel like it's even more beautiful than a door. Uh, it's a river. Um, can, can you read the end of the poem again? Like, um, you know, so it's, it's, it's basically, syntactically you're still going with all the things that your mother has taught you you know uh, how to laugh at this poem how to turn each bridge into a balcony and then that part that follows yeah so how to turn each bridge into a balcony to applaud everything that floats down river depending which way you turn the water is coming or it has already left now there's like a actually like a little nod there of of suicide when we have this bridge right um we have uh, this place where people jump from and i actually in, in in graduate school when i was sort of like at the peak of my stress and and my grieving and processing because you're sort of like in this weird capitalist position to like pump out work yeah you know and to reckon faster. Okay, Stephen, your 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 poetry is is a reckoning of kind, but can you reckon faster? You know. Yeah. And I used to uh, walk across this bridge all the time on the way to class, mm-hmm. and um, you know, it it crossed my mind. But like, quite literally, th- this image is true, right? Depending on on which way you look on a bridge, the water is coming towards you or it is leaving you. Um, And that is not certainty, right? But it does provide you with a kind of agency um, in in some weird way, right? Yeah. Um, Yeah. And I yeah, and I found it also like almost like Taoistic or something, you know, like oh yes, things are always moving. Like you may be very very sad now, but the water is keeping on moving, you know, like things will change again. That's funny you say that because my therapist has read my poetry and said the same thing. 
<laughs> but so when you said, oh, yeah, that's interesting. That's what my therapist said to you. I'm hearing in that 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 is not exactly maybe 100 percent what you were seeing or thinking or intending. Like, what is that ending mean to you no i no i no 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 i think you're right it's just that i um i'm sort of like realizing it after having written right and also like writing is this weird it, it feels like time traveling sometimes because you know i'm a very lucky poet and i have had um some really great things happen recently regarding poetry but it's like all these celebrations for poems I wrote two or three years ago, <laughs> you know, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> and all of this thinking that I did two or three years ago. Yeah. So, yeah, I think, you know, maybe I did think that, uh, but it's a sort of like post realization, you know? Yeah. How how old were you when your mom was first diagnosed with cancer? So I, I think I was about 15 or 16. Oh, wow. I remember the date, but I don't remember the year. It was October 26th that I found out. And uh, Why do you remember? Because it was right before Halloween. Oh. Um, and I remember like legitimately crying under my stupid mask or something. Yeah. You know, because I, I don't know if, if this was your experience, but like there's a certain age where you stop doing Halloween and then you start up again and you're like clearly too old to be doing it. So I remember like coming back. This was like my second wave of Halloween. And then like I got this news and then it was like a very strange time, you know? Yeah. But it was it was not it was not good because just a couple years before that, my grandfather died of lung cancer and it was very quick. They caught it like very late. And it was like six months or something like that. So when she told me the news, I remember thinking it was a death sentence yeah. immediately. Yeah, of course. You know, because yeah. that was my only experience with that. Yeah. And it wasn't because she's, I guess, lucky in some ways and also incredibly strong. And, and um, yeah, but, you know, losing her hair, losing her job at the time, um, Uh, seeing her incredibly sick, uh, you know, because cancer makes you less sick than than the remedies for cancer, right? right. right? Yeah. The remedies for cancer are really terrible. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. And it and it was weird, right? That was our our first our first real intimacy. You know, I was always incredibly jealous of my brother. Because when we were younger, he was always getting into a lot of trouble. And I remembered feeling jealous of him because that trouble necessitated action by my mom. Like she had to go to court or she had to go to jail or she had to, to call the police and, and like speak with them or whatever. Yeah. And so they had like a kind of closeness that I, I really always sort of admired, even though it was, you know, they were never good situations. But he was always getting in trouble and uh, I was not. My, my mom was way stricter with me than uh, with with my brother. 
How old? How much older was your brother, or is he is he your brother? My my brother's a lot older, so he's nine years older. That is a lot, right,、yeah. right, right. And how old were you? Because you said you were fifteen or sixteen when you got the diagnosis about your mom's cancer. Was your brother still around then? Yeah, he was around.、Um, I think he kind of avoided. I think he kind of avoided talking about it and like.、Uh, And like dealing with it, but also he was like really deep into his addiction at that time, you know. So he had he had his stuff to to worry about, and um, yeah. And so when your brother was already pretty deep in his addiction, and your mother was first diagnosed, did you feel like that that made the two of you closer? Like, did she kind of confide in you, or, or did she want to be like tough and independent and not bother you with it? Oh yeah, yeah, super tough.、Um, really tried to make sure it didn't interrupt my life. And you know what? I, you know, at that point, I was taking cues from my brother. I was, in my own way, trying to avoid it. You know, I, I had jobs too when I was in high school, so I was busy. Um, there was a point where I had to help, you know, pay rent、um, and things like that. So I had to work, and uh,、um, you know, my my mom did a good job. She always does of、uh, sort of like protecting us in a way that she thinks is is super healthy,、um, you know, and and which I am realizing is maybe not,、mm-hmm. but <laughs> and you know, she was she was she、uh, yeah, she always did her best. Yeah.、Um, yeah. And were you resentful at all that you had to like you know deal with this when you were just trying to be a teenager, or you know that you had to chip in with rent, or 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 was that really not the feeling you had? Hmm. Was I resentful? Can I think about that? Yeah, totally. I'll tell you why I'm asking. You know, I'm asking you because I feel like, or at least I was as a teenager, so self-absorbed. Like I, I cannot even. There was just no space for anyone else's problems、uh, because my own feelings were so loud. You know,、uh, and so I'm just, yeah, I'm just trying to imagine what it's like to have this、sure. sprung on you. Yeah, no. I mean, that's a good point. I I think that it was complicated because I I was a teenager and I I, <laughs> I I there were a lot of changes going on and I'm trying to like date every person at my school and like <laughs>、uh, you know do do that kind of thing.、Sure. Uh, you know, while while chemotherapy is happening, you know, like、uh, it was complicated. I remember I. I You know, I don't know if I re- remember resenting my mother, but I definitely resented my brother、uh, for not for not coming around more. And and I still do. You know, like like she is. You know, I don't know if my brother is alive. Yeah. You know, it's been,、um, it's been, wow.、Um, it's it's been three. Th- wait, how how? I'm so bad at math. It's it's been you know twelve years. Um, since I've seen him, and、uh, and or or heard from him, right?、Mm-hmm. And in fact,、um, as far as like the state is concerned,、um, 
uh, he's dead, right? There, there's a thing called death and absentia. If you if you don't hear from someone or you can't locate them for ten years, oh, wow. then you can get a death certificate, right? And you did um, that. I mean, your family, you you did get the death certificate, or you, or that's just the say. No, we point. haven't. Uh-huh. We haven't done mm-hmm. that. No, I've looked into that, and we haven't done that. Uh, <laughs> my mom actually, she told me like two weeks ago. She's like. Uh, and and you know she can barely speak. Two two weeks ago yeah. she's doing much better now as far as speaking, uh-huh. but uh, two weeks ago she could barely speak. And she's like, you know what? I'm gonna hire a private investigator. You know yeah. what does it cost? Eighty dollars. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> she's like, here's my budget. Yes. Will you please hire a private investigator? Yeah. Um, and I, I had to like be very upfront with her and and say, you know what, I have done so much work to, uh, not get over. I don't even know what language I want to put there. Um, sort of like process a brother that just disappears and I don't want to open that. Mm -hmm. I don't want to open that box. And she said, okay, you know, and we've, we've been through all of the, you know, like prison databases, and we've we've done the whole trying to find him social media and stuff like that. Um, but yeah, yeah. And uh, this is maybe a horrible question, but it sometimes feels like in modern life you cannot really disappear, right? Like you cannot just say die in the street or something without there being a record of that, right? Like the police is going to make a report; they're going to try and figure out who it is. Um. How, how yeah, do people I mean, disappear? That's a good question. Uh, if I find him one day, I will. Uh, I'll let you know. Yeah. Um, but I, I don't know if if he's around. Then I don't think he goes by his name anymore. And uh, that would make sense. He's always had a, a person for everything. You know, he. Mm. I, I struggle between is and was with him, you know, I don't, yeah, yeah. Uh, it, it really does change sort of like unconsciously every day. Um, but he, he is a really charismatic person. Um, <laughs> I remember, I remember once I saw him deal drugs to his high school security guard Wow. and thinking, oh, wow. Okay. Like this person is different. My brother is different. Yeah. Um, Yeah. So, you know, there's a possibility he's alive. And you know what? I think that that is um, that's the trickiest thing for me is that if there is a death, if there if there are bones, if there's caution tape, you know, you get to start, you know, you, you get to start some kind of process of grieving. You get you get to do the thing and and it becomes a closed circuit. Right. Yeah. But when there's no body um, and there's just absence, uh, it becomes a loop of grief. And that is that is tough, Um, you know, and that's just my my brother, you know, uh, my my only sibling. But for my mom, you know, that's her son. You know, I imagine it's even more difficult for her. Yeah, of course. Yeah. And earlier you, you were talking about certainty. And uncertainty and you said you know uncertainty means possibility and you said it sure. then in a context of like that's a good thing you know <laughs> yeah but I feel like here 
it seems like the uncertainty, the possibility, right, that he may still be alive and be somewhere. Um, or maybe the, I don't know which one is worse, you know, the possibility that... Because at least if he's dead, then he's not just ignoring you all, you know what I mean? Yeah, what you just said is kind of everything. Uh, I don't know which one is worse. I think that that's the title of my book now. Um, <laughs> no, <laughs> that's a, that's kind of like the whole thing is that the the waiting is is the hardest part, yeah, right? Yeah. So speaking of waiting, <laughs> my mom had this nickname growing up in Los Angeles for this park, and it was not the name of the park. I don't remember what the park was called. But she had a nickname for it, which is Waiter Park, W-A-I-T-E-R, Waiter Park. And it was a small place where you went to buy drugs, right? And she called it Waiter Park because people were waiting for their lives to change, mm-hmm. right? And obviously that that is like a little bit reductive when it comes to like addiction and uh, people that don't have homes and things like that. Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. But it was, it was people waiting for their lives to change. And now I just like, <laughs> I do feel like I'm in that space, like that, that weird liminal waiting space. And it's a, it's a weird, it's a weird place to be. Yeah. Yeah. It's almost like you have to make a decision, right? Like the, the, the facts don't decide for you. Like, okay, you can start grieving your brother. Like, you have to decide, am I going to start this process? And, like, I, I don't even know how you can do that. I know that, uh, you know, through, through these years of therapy, um, that it, closure has to happen through me, you know, and um, it, it hasn't yet. Um, I think that I think that honestly, in in some ways, this is why it's tough to put the final touches on this book because it is a kind of um, closure in my art, right? I've always been bad at endings. I've always been bad at, you know, uh, th- as long as I can remember. Even <laughs> I I I would stop reading books in the last chapter, you know, I hate it. I hate endings. Um, so I, I know it has to come from within me, whatever it is. Right. Yeah. And I think that in poetry, I can imagine different circumstances, or I can imagine the things that have happened in a different way, or I can sort of lay them out like a stage and process them. Right. And, um, you know, I think there's a kind of, even through the grief, there's a kind of like tenderness and intimacy when I write poems about my brother that maybe I haven't received from him. You know, sometimes even violence is a kind of intimacy. I, I wrote a poem that was about one time when he burned my hand with a cigarette. And that was a thing that actually happened. And I have a scar on my hand from it still. And and in some ways that burn is an intimacy, and that that intimacy has like outlived him literally, maybe literally. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like proof that he was really there, basically. Yeah, yeah. And when you write, you said that you don't like endings, but do you feel that whatever the ending is that you write, does that help you then 
inside you. You know what I mean? Like, does the form of the poem, the fact that it ends, help you reach some kind of closure within you that maybe parallels the one that you trace in the poem? Uh, I mean, that's a good, that's a really good question. Um, I think I learned a lot about closure in poetry from the book Headwaters by Ellen Brent Voigt. And that book, um, has no punctuation. Right. And, and I think that in, in some ways, punctuation can feel like a kind of like completeness. Totally. Right. I remember writing, um, a lot of poems, drafting a lot of the poems, um, in the book with no punctuation, um, and, and trying my best to, um, I don't know. For, I wanted my poems to live in a, in a as liminal a space as I feel mm-hmm. like I am sometimes. Mm-hmm. I think that's also why I often will end poems on an image. I don't. I don't think my speaker is is finished, but I think that they observe. Right. Their their last act is not to speak to you. Their last act is to observe. I want to change gears a little bit because I want to talk to you about the beauty of language because, you know, your poems, dark as they may be in subject matter, they are just a feast of sounds and images that, that are so layered and fun and sometimes just made me laugh and then I felt horrendously guilty, you know, because it felt like <laughs> the wrong thing to do. And so I'm just wondering, like, what do you think has, like, sharpened your ear for language? Like, what has made you pay attention to words? Oh, man. Well, first of all, thank you so much. That's an incredible compliment. Mm-hmm. I don't know if I agree with you, <laughs> but I believe that you believe. Um, and that is really great <laughs> to hear because I, I I, mean, that's one of the first things that I, I think about when I think about good poetry is, is the music. Uh Jericho Brown says that they will remember you for your music more than the words, you know. Mm. So that that's something that I'm I'm always sort of like thinking about. Um, I think that early in my life, um, definitely music, and then later in my life, definitely reading. I I was not a great student in high school. I was not a reader at all. Mm-hmm. I was the person that would spark notes books <laughs> oh um, my god that's a hard and just kind of do fine you know i wasn't yeah, yeah. Uh, i i didn't get a's mm-hmm. um and, and in some ways i missed like the canon completely which is like both good and bad i think um i listened to mostly hip-hop and rap growing up and i think these are genres that are really attuned to sound and pacing and i would say more so than other genres i listened to a lot of Black Star and MF Doom and Biggie Smalls and um, you know I I just actually realized I 
said a bunch of East Coast rappers <laughs> and, and <laughs> people in LA are going to be upset at me. Um, but of course, Tupac. Yeah, so Tupac yeah, too. Yeah. Um, I actually do. I teach Tupac in, in my intro to creative writing oh, class. That's so but anyway, nice. yeah. Um, reading definitely uh, later in life. Yeah. In college, though, I had a 90 minute commute. So I was traveling three hours a day. And I found that poetry was so much more digestible for me. Mm. Instead of like finishing on page 44 of some novel, like a quarter of the way down the page, and I forgot what the you know chapter was about when I revisited it, I could be done. I could be done with a poem, you know, and in, in, in three hours, I could finish a whole book in a day. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That gives you a real sense of accomplishment, right? Look at me burning through these yeah. books. Oh, hell yeah. yeah. And then you have this this sudden library of, of 200 books of poems under your belt, and it's just like a little bit of space on a shelf, you know, because they're so small. <laughs> I love that. I mean, I love that that is... Yeah, by being sort of a mm-hmm student, you know, that you actually kind of saved yourself for poetry, you know, if I can put it in such a Puritan way. I think that's very generous, but I will. <laughs> yeah, I did. I maybe dodge. I dodged something, but it was an accident. That is really you know? a good way of putting it. So I was wondering if you can read a poem where I think that simultaneous, like, total darkness and then the absolute thrill of your language really came out um it's the poem called a river is a body running oh great yeah um i'll read that a river is a body running the first time i found my brother overdosed he looked holy a thing not to be touched yellow halo of last night's dinner his skin, blanched blue fresco, patron saint of smack. A cop, flustered, tugged up his shorts, plunged a needle into a pale thigh. He hissed, awake like a soda can. The paramedic spoke slowly in his ear like a lover, asked him what color yellow and red make. What is the difference between a lake and a river? In the corner, I whittle my brother's used syringe into an instrument only I can play. Yeah. <laughs> Seriously, I did a double take at that, at those lines, yellow halo of last night's dinner. Um... Because, you know, first of all, like a halo is a, such a beautiful thing, you know, and, and then the, the sounds of a yellow halo are, I, I thought, like, how has not everyone already done this? Thank you. Yeah. But then, of course, you know, like the yellow halo of last night's dinner, I mean, the image that it actually, yeah, you use really beautiful language to describe something quite, uh, quite ugly. Thank you. Yeah, I mean, and there is such joy in, like, just the sounds, you know, like, this description of this uh, patron saint of smack. Like, it's so confident and concise, and it just mashes these two worlds that never mash, you know? Um, I thought it was really, really well done. Thank you. Be because, again, yeah, it's like, okay, can the situation be any darker? Hardly. 
Sure. But then look at me having fun with words, you know. And I thought, <laughs> <laughs> that should be. Can you blurb my book? That uh, look at look at him having fun with words. Thank you. Uh, actually, you know what? My mother is in this poem. It's a little sort of like hidden thing. Um, so uh, a few months ago, definitely before her stroke, she fell down and she got a concussion. And um, the attending nurse in the ER that she went to, uh, she asked her this question. What is the difference between a lake and a river? Oh, Right. So that question is actually a question that was literally asked to my mother. And that's what built this poem. I built the poem off of that one line. I love that she's in there, too. And I love also like the way you play with images. You know, you, you already said that you like to end on an image. Um, so here you talk about your brother's used syringe that you whittle into an instrument only I can play. Um, which I thought was such a nice way of like looking at a syringe, you know, like it, it does kind of become what, what, are, what is this thing you? Yeah, it's like a little flute or something. Trombone. Yeah. Oh, like a trombone. Oh, that's perfect. Yeah. yeah. So I thought that was great. And then the other image that was just spectacular was um, so you have the cop, you know, flustered, plunged a needle into a pale thigh. He hissed awake like a soda can. Really? How did you come up with that? <laughs> You know, that that simile changed a few times. I don't remember what the other ones were, but I, when I when I got that one, I, I knew that that one was was right. Yeah. It's, um, yeah, that one really worked for me. Yeah, and it's so irreverent, right? And it's interesting because you're like playing with reverence, right? Like there is the patron saint of smack, which is, of course, both reverent and irreverent, you know? Sure. And yeah, I'm just wondering when you use these images that are so joyful and imaginative um, does it transform the way you look at this moment like does it heal you does it make you feel less angry towards your brother or you know well you know what I think that I am grateful to my brother for giving me poetry, you know, because his leaving sort of sparked this compulsory imagining um, that within an absence, I have to figure out what, what fills that space. Um, and in, the, in this case, I think my book or, or, or my poetry is the instrument that I can play, right? I, I cannot relate to my brother for for having an overdose you know i i can't put myself in that body i can't empathize with that i can't relate to my mother for having a terminal illness but i am the witness of those things and they have brushed against me and they have changed me and they have become the instrument that only i can play um so yeah you know i I think that the images, they, they do help me process grief, but also they help me imagine other futures and other possibilities and other pasts, you know? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. But do you, does the thought of being a family of one frighten you? <laughs> 
You know, um, sometimes I feel like my family was like an accident. My family was never meant to happen. <laughs> you know, in fact, uh, I, so I was actually two months premature. And the reason I was premature was because my mom was actually in a coma. Oh. Um, I didn't see her for four months after I was born, right? In fact, um, my extended family, my aunts were already planning to, like, adopt me and, and live a whole other life. And uh, my brother and I, we have different fathers, and, and both of those fathers are out of the picture, right? Yeah. And so it does feel like <laughs> this weird, this weird family, this is not the family model, right? This is not the nuclear family. Yeah. So in, in some ways, it, it feels like it was destined to come apart. But I, I do, I, I can't help to feel sort of like cosmically alone in, in that predicament. It, it does feel very strange. I am also someone who like doesn't plan to have children. Um, mm -hmm. And so I feel like, I feel like our family lineage sort of like does kind of end here, you know? Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. um yeah, I, I I feel like I've always been preparing for a life uh, without these people in it. In some ways, it's very strange, yeah. you know. Yeah. Um, yeah. 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 You know, like I feel like often when you know growing up, uh, sort of in the sense of like maturing, is is often seen as this way where you learn to be your own parents, um, even when your parents are still alive, you know, that that's kind of the idea that you, you know, you go to bed at an appropriate time, you know what I mean? That you, uh, you don't drink too much, you, you do uh, whatever, say sorry when you did something stupid, you know? Mm -hmm. um, and yeah, I'm wondering if you are, trying to do more of that right now that you know that your mom won't be there for very much longer you know that you're trying to nourish a kind of relationship with yourself so that you may be your own parent hmm. that's a good question You know what? I I think <laughs> this is like the weirdest thing, but um, you know, I recently um, was awarded a Ruth Lilly Fellowship. Yeah. And um, it sort of like changed things for me, especially like financially. You know, they gave me a chunk of money, and it's the most money I've ever seen. And uh, it, I think when that happened, when it just sort of like showed up in my bank account. Um, I was like, whoa, if I play my cards right, I could, I could like be an adult, <laughs> you know, I mean, I mean, I, we grew up really poor, you know, we never had a mortgage. My, my mom will die without ever seeing, you know, a, a mortgage and, and, you know, she has like four nice things and, and most of them are like, this is a $30 vase, yeah, you know? Yeah. And <laughs> so I, I think, um, I think I'm sort of like trying to imagine uh, a future 
and like coming to terms with it being like possible actually um also i i like literally picked the weirdest thing to get into you know i a lot of people don't know this but i was actually pre-med um and i had like two internships with hospitals and stuff like that like i was doing it wow you know i was like i was like defying the odds and then i was like mm, how about poetry <laughs> yeah that's quite courageous actually. i didn't even I didn't even think, you know, maybe I could do a, like a memoir or like uh, write a novel or something that might give me even uh, more of a chance. Right. But right. Um, yeah, I think that I think that the poems were a kind of like emotional investment for me and my survival. And th I got very lucky recently and I learned that they might be more than that you know, yeah. more than an emotional investment and that maybe other people are vibing with them too. Yeah. Um, and I can actually, I can actually sort of like follow this path a little bit. Yeah. So, yes. Do you want to read one last poem? Yeah, I would be happy to. It's the one called Elegy for the Four Chambers of My Mother's Heart. Yeah, let me um, pull that up. I love that poem. Yeah, me too. That poem always gets me. Yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> wait, hold on. Let me find it. Okay. okay. <laughs> Elegy for the Four Chambers of My Mother's Heart. One. You're just barely making it now to the microwave. Your knees, they tremble, Mom, like a fresh fawn. The beginning of life is too much, like the end of it. You pinch the seam of a bag of popcorn, swaddle it like a steaming newborn within the basket of your walker. Did you know, you ask, that Orville Redenbacher died sleeping in a jacuzzi? That's how I want to go. Two. As a child, you made me hold my breath driving past cemeteries, under bridges, through tunnels. We gasped for air like superstitious carp, tiptoed around grave plots to honor the dead, leaped over sidewalk cracks to honor the living, our mothers, you. You ratchet the bare ball of your foot into each seam as if it were the cherry end of a cigarette as if you could design a future for yourself, trade chemotherapy for a chiropractor. On that last flight to see you, the pilot said, if you insist on smoking, please do it outside. At the Olive Garden off Sable Boulevard, you joke, when you're here, your family is dying. We push yardsticks of bread down our trombone throats, wonder how to prolong a meal that must end. Three. In Colorado, you work nights at a call center from your kitchen table. You swore once you sold camping gear to Matthew McConaughey, kept his credit card number for a rainy day, 
The graveyard shift should be illegal, I joke. You throw your head back in laughter, like a villain might in a Disney movie. Ursula-esque. You say, dying doesn't keep the lights on. The water heater drooling in its sarcophagus closet. But you're off tonight. You get to sleep in the dark like regular people, you say. Four. This is an elegy, and believe me, it will end within the small walls of your townhome. And because I am selfish, it ends with your words and a memory of just you and me standing above your kitchen sink, pouring water into an ice cube tray. You tell me to watch as the water fills up one corner, then overflows into every empty square. This, you say, this is how I love you. Stephen Espada Dawson is one of five poets who's been selected this year by the Poetry Foundation as Ruth Lilly and Dorothy Sargent Rosenberg Fellow. He's still working on his first book, but you can read his poems in Adroit Journal, Best New Poems 2020, Coppernickel, Gulf Coast, Kenyan Review Online, Waxwing, and Poetry. Stephen Espada Dawson teaches community-based poetry workshops for the Austin Library Foundation and mentors young poets at Ellipsis Writing. He lives in Austin, Texas with his partner Taylor and their dog and two cats. To find out more, check out the Poetry Foundation website. The music in this episode is by Todd Sikafus and Erik van der Reste. I'm Helena de Groot and this was Poetry off the shelf. Thank you for listening.